Welcome to the South Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Well, welcome friends. How are you today? I love it. My name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting, uh, we're really glad you visited today in this uh, series on relationships. And, and if it gets awkward, we're okay with that. That's relationships can get awkward at times. Let me start us with a text and uh, then we'll, we'll get into it. If you want to follow along in your own Bible, this is Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to start reading at verse 15. The Lord God made the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and the birds in the trees. He brought them to the man to see what he would name each one of them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the air, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the men's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Uh, Jesus, as we try and process this, uh, would you speak to us? Would you help us to understand each each other better in whatever ways you need to challenge us uh, as human beings? Would you do that? Thank you that you are present here. Present here in those of, uh, with those of us that feel guilty, feel broken, feel unwanted, feel rejected. Present with those of us that feel loved, accepted, and desired. So God, please speak to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're visiting, you're joining us in this series, which is our series to move from this time of Easter, Easter tide, all the way through to this moment of Pentecost, this moment where we celebrate the birth of the church, and we do that through baptisms. If you are someone that would say, I'm experiencing life change at the moment, there's something that Jesus has done inside of me, we would love to celebrate that with you in baptism if you've never been baptized before, or perhaps if you were baptized as a child and say, I didn't really get to to speak into that or choose that, we would love to celebrate you and celebrate the work that God has done in you. And so as we progress, you'll hear more and more about baptism and just why it matters for the church today. And, and if you go to register at southfellowship.org, uh, grow, you can actually begin a conversation. Let me just say that. This isn't like a virus. If you click on it, you didn't sign up for it. It's not like you, you, you're locked in. You just, this begins 
begins a conversation, and we would love to have that conversation with you. As always, if you have questions about anything said today, then we'd love to answer them on our weekly podcast just to get into some of those details. So my family, I talked last week about how we'd, we'd got rid of a puppy, something families rarely do. Uh, we had a puppy, we received it, and then we said, no, the puppy is not for us. The puppy is now gone, and we are happy that the puppy is gone. Instead, in replacement of that, we got chicken pox. Um, so, so three of my kids right now have chicken pox, so they're at home. And so none of us have slept very much, I'll be honest. That's the downside of chicken pox. And so if at any point there's a slide on there and you look and say, you don't really seem like you know why that slide is there, you might be right, uh, just, just to throw that out there. But that could be true on any other week uh, as well. So that's the negative side of the chicken pox in the house. The positive side was this. Obviously, it, it snowed on Friday and, and there was no skiing because can you imagine chicken pox and itchy ski clothes and the, the heat? That, that wouldn't be good. So we all just stayed home, which meant on Friday I fixed three dripping faucets, which is like an achievement, right? Um, yeah, thank you. I'm here for that applause. Um, and, and then I said to my wife, while you're not here on Sunday because you'll be home, I'm going to use this passage from Scripture in Proverbs 27. <laughs> a, a nagging spouse is like the drip, drip, drip of a leaky faucet. You can't turn it off and you can't get away from it, except... If you're the one that in the house is in charge of the maintenance, and if someone's been asking you to fix it for a while, um, then it might be that the nagging's a little bit on you, and you can fix that by just fixing the faucet. And it, and it took me about 10 minutes, uh, which was embarrassing after waiting many months to fix it. Um, we're, we're in this this realm of relationships for a while. And the reason we're doing that is because, as we said last week, relationships are hard work, so let's work hard at our relationships. They require it. They're not easy. And if you're someone that would say, well, well I'm not married, I'm not in a relationship right now, well, 98, 99% of people who aren't hope to be one day, and you need to know now that they're hard. If you've been in a relationship and you're not now, perhaps you've uh, been through a divorce, perhaps you've been a widower or become widowed, uh, well, you know that relationships are hard. And so you know that as a community, we need to talk about this. And so even if you feel like you're kind of not in that zone right now and perhaps don't want to be again, we know you're cheering us on as couples that are wrestling with relationships. And if you're in a relationship right now, well, I don't need to tell you that relationships are hard because they involve two people coming together. And that is always complicated right now of the many people that will spend some of the 50 billion dollars that we as a nation spend on weddings each year about 40 to 46 percent of them depending on the demographic will end in divorce will end in divorce of those big celebratory celebratory moments about almost half of them will say no this didn't work out for us and perhaps that shouldn't surprise us because really any relationship, but especially a relationship of marriage, is a collision of me, of a me, and a you. It's a collision of two people who have their own identity, their own sense of self, that bring all of their own baggage, bring all of their own history, and the two kind of try and meet in the middle. The writer Martin Buber talks about this pair, this I and thou. 
there's me, there's what I want, and there's you and there's what you want. And any time those interact, that's a challenge, that's difficult. But when they interact constantly in a confined space as many marriages find themselves, well, the interaction can become more intense. It's interesting, Jesus said in Mark chapter 12 that we as followers of his were called to love your neighbor as yourself or love our neighbors as ourselves. Neighbor is a proximity term. It's about closeness. It's not about any particular ethnic background, any social background. It's simply the person that is close to you. And isn't it interesting or perhaps sad that the person we often struggle to interact with the most is the person who is closest to us that shares not only a house with us, not only a bedroom with us, but even a bed with us. That kind of relationship can at times become the hardest relationship of all. So this is what we get to wrestle with as a community. Coco Chanel said, it's probably just by chance that I'm alone. It would be very hard for a man to live with me unless he's terribly strong. And if he's stronger than I, well, I'm the one that cannot live with him. It just shows some of the tension in male-female relationships, right? How do we manage that? So I wrote this blurb just so I'd remember it after not sleeping at all. Human beings are a strange mixture of competition and collaboration. We're able to collaborate with not only close family or friends, but also with complete strangers. We are also driven by a myriad of personal instincts and desires that can make us decidedly selfish creatures towards those closest to us. We are unique as a species in our ability to collaborate with people we don't know. You can drop into a new relationship and find commonality, and that is rare. And yet we can also be selfish towards those closest to us in ways that is almost unique out of any species. That's the interesting mix that we are as human beings. Last week we began here. Matthew chapter 19, verse 1 to 3. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees, some religious leaders, came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Jesus replied, haven't you read that at the beginning the creator made the male and female, the story we just read, and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus talks about the collision of a me and a you, an I and a thou, and says these two come together, and it's supposed to stay that way when it's centered around marriage. Now, important caveat in any relationship series, none of this is supposed to be about guilt. It might be that there's a part of your story that you say, that's really painful. That wasn't what I intended, that wasn't what I wanted, and sometimes it's part of your story that wasn't even your choice. None of this is supposed to bring shame. The difference that I always find between shame and, and what I might call conviction, this work of God inside us, is, is this. Shame tells you that you are bad and nothing can change and what you've done is, is, is unchangeable. You are a broken human being, you are undesirable. That isn't what Jesus does. Jesus brings what's called conviction, which is this sense of there are new possibilities emerging. There is a new way to live that you are invited into. He offers cleansing and he offers the redemption, the restoration of all things in the most surprising 
way. So if there's ever a moment in this series that you have that sense of, like, ah, I'm a broken person, and, and, and everything about me is repellent to God, that isn't God speaking to you. That's not what I'm trying to say. That's completely different. We see here God's original picture of what marriage might be, a joining together of two people, and yet we also recognize there's ways that that has become broken. And many of us in this room have experienced that. And do you know what I've never experienced in all 20 odd years of pastoral ministry? I've never met a single person that's got into a relationship and said this, I'm gonna get married to this person and I'm gonna screw this relationship up as much as possible. I'm gonna drive the other person mad. I'm gonna make sure that they're miserable and I'm gonna make sure in about two years we flame out completely. I have not experienced that in all of my life in doing ministry. Every relationship that I've come across starts with hopefulness and good intentions and yet we as human beings bring our own brokenness to it. This is Jesus' answer, that there's two coming together and it's supposed to stay that way and the Pharisees, as they often do, have a pushback. Why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Why, Moses, why did Moses make divorce easy? Why did he make it so that we could just wipe the slate and start again with a fresh person, with all of these fresh hopes? Why, why don't you say the same, Jesus, is really the heart of their question. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Jesus says, now this thing was supposed to remain. It was supposed to be, it was supposed to be permanent. And the disciples recognize the tension in this. They recognize the brokenness of humanity and how often our relationships get warped. So their question is, if it's that serious, Jesus, if marriage is that permanent, if it's not supposed to be broken, then, then if this is the situation, isn't it better to just not marry? And their, their reaction or their expectation must have been that Jesus would say, as almost every Jewish person would at the time, well, no, of course it's better to marry. Everyone gets married. No one doesn't get Married, and Jesus, as he often does, gives a different reply. Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. And I've given you the next uh, verses in the message version. Not everyone is mature enough to live a married life. It requires a certain aptitude and grace. Marriage isn't for everyone. Some from birth seemingly never give marriage a thought. Others never get asked or accepted. And some decide not to get married for kingdom reasons. But if you're capable of growing into the largeness of marriage, do it. So a couple of things that we might pick out there. There's a whole bunch of reasons why marriage might not be on the cards. And then there's this recognition, but, but if you do, it requires that you grow into it. Even Jesus says it's going to take work to make this kind of relationship coexist. And his follower Paul says the same thing. I would like you to be free from concern. This is 1 Corinthians 7. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord, but a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, how he can fix dripping faucets, and his interests are divided. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Both Jesus and Paul say there is the option for singleness. You can choose it. And there is the option to get married, and you can choose that as well. And both will come with joys, and both will come with challenges. 
fascinatingly to me, Jesus here seems to speak out against two different things that seem very different to each other. Jesus speaks out against casual sex and casual marriage. He says you can't just do whatever you want with whoever you want and be a healthy, whole human being. But also, don't just jump into marriage without thinking about it, without processing. You've got to do it and consider it because this journey is not an easy journey. In the common book of prayer of the Church of England, it says marriage is not to be enterprised nor taken in hand unadvisedly, lightly or wantonly to satisfy men's carnal lusts and appetites like brute beasts that have no understanding, but reverently discreetly, advisedly, soberly, and in the fear of God, duly considering the causes for which matrimony was ordained. We just don't write this way anymore. This is like serious language that they're bringing here. There's, there's a seriousness, it seems, to marriage that both Paul and Jesus emphasize. Think about it. Consider it. So here, here's my question. If we have followed with Jesus and Paul, and we've said, I'm not made for singleness. I can't see a pathway to, to your kind of singleness, Jesus, which he presents as, has been synonymous with celibacy and abstinence. Never says it's just a casual thing that you can just do whatever you want. But, but if, if I've said, no, I can't stay single, I, I want to get married, isn't this the follow-up question? How do I find the one? How do I find the one, the one person that's uniquely designed to fit with me as another human being, the one you who can collide with my me with minimal disruption? Isn't that what society tells us we should look for? Think about every book you've read. Think about every movie you've watched. Think about every pop culture reference. Isn't there a moment where two characters appear on screen, maybe not at the same time, but, but, but in quick succession. And you know instantly, I know what their future is. There's the moment of the meet cute, there's the moment where two couples come together and perhaps they come together for a silly reason. He needs pajama pants and she needs a pajama top and for some reason they meet in a store and you're not quite sure why, but you know what the character's future is and sure, there'll be twists and turns, but you know already that according to this narrative, these two are soulmates, are meant to be together and then there's the moment at the end where everything is resolved and all of the tension disappears and you know they, they get to go on to their happily ever after. I might even ask you this, as a man who's forced to watch lots of romantic comedies, what is your favorite happily ever after quote? What is your moment of resolve in the movie that you say, yes, that feels good to me? Perhaps it's, you've got mail, this moment. I wanted it to be you. I wanted it to be you so badly. Maybe it's gone with the wind. You should be kissed and often by someone who knows how. <laughs> I was going to do my American accent, but it always sounds like James Cagney rather than Clark Gable, and uh, you should be kissed and often, see? <laughs> oh man, descending into madness. I have every accent of the world in my disposal, but not American, apparently. Notting Hill, I'm just a girl standing in front of a boy, asking him to love her. Pride and prejudice, you have bewitched me, body and soul, and I love, I love, I love you, and I never wish to be parted you from you from this day on. Perhaps not in the original novel, but at least a good adaptation of the heartbeat of the text. 
And then how about this one? Jerry Maguire. You complete me. You complete me. These are pictures in, in pop culture. They give us some sense of what it is to meet this one, this soulmate that will come and they will provide everything. But is that a biblical idea, I guess, is my question for us. Maybe the closest the Bible gets to describing something like this is, is Song of Songs chapter 3. I found the one my heart loves. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him to my mother's house, to the room of the one who conceived me. That's maybe as close as it gets. But when we say, God, provide me with someone that's going to give me everything I need, I guess is the language. He's going to be the perfect fit for me. What, what, exactly, what exactly are we asking for? And is it realistic? Or is it real? Or is it even what God intends for us? In actual fact, when the Bible talks about marriage as a whole, the biblical writers give this realistic picture of marriage, they almost never sugarcoated. In the first 11 chapters of Genesis, the passages that you might describe as stories that explain our stories, marriage actually at times gets rather a bad rep. In Genesis chapter four, we read already, Lamech married two women. The first time someone marries two people, one named Adar and the other named Zillah. We kind of probably gloss over that text, but if you look at the Hebrew language, it might be translated like this. Lamech married two women, one named Ornament and the other named Shadow. The, the commentary that goes alongside it says that he, he picked one for her beauty and she was the one that he put on public display, took out to all of the social gatherings and he had another wife who was just there to have children with and she was removed to the background, was kept in the shadows. And already four chapters in, we see ways that relationships, that the, the, the interaction between men and women can be pretty broken. When we say, God, give me the one, send me the, the person that I'm supposed to be with, or have I, have I married the person I'm supposed to be with, perhaps is another way of phrasing it. Well, is that what the Bible offers? Is that what we're supposed to chase after? In the passage that we began with, Genesis chapter 2, it says this, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Verse 19, the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Perhaps if anywhere, this is where we get this idea that there's someone out there that will be a helper to me that will provide what I need. How many of you, when you read the word helper, hear like secondary role, someone to assist, someone to come alongside and give the support that is needed? Is that what you read? That's what I read for lots of years, whether it's male or female. I read that there was supposed to be someone that would come along and would, would provide for my needs. But, but this word helper isn't that. This word helper in Hebrew is this word ezer, which means to help or aid, yes, but it's only used 22 times in a couple of contexts. Most of the time it describes the way that God helps people of faith, that the God of the universe might step in in a moment of need in this incredibly strong and powerful way and do something wonderful in a given situation. Sometimes it describes a person who rides point in a military formation in the V shape. It's the person that, that takes the lead that is strong and powerful. Controversially, Genesis, in a time where women were reduced to a secondary role, says that at least in God's original purpose for us, at least before the fall, 
that actually it was very different to that. That there was a strength there that maybe we often miss as 21st century readers of this text. We're told that God provides Adam with someone who can do something wonderful for him and with him and alongside him. I think I often read Genesis chapter 2 as this. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make somebody who will give him everything he needs. Someone who will give him everything he needs. And there's a couple of nuances to that that I'd love us to wrestle through, because I think by implication that moves on to a couple of other ideas. Perhaps I read somebody who completes me. Somebody who completes me. And my question is, is that ever what a human being is supposed to do for you? Are they supposed to bring that sense of I'm now complete? If we believe that, then one of the things we have to accept is that Jesus was not a complete whole human being, that Paul, one of his earliest followers, was not a complete whole human being, that they lacked something because nobody had come along and made them complete. If anything, what the the biblical writers say to us is this, only God brings that sense of wholeness, that sense of completion. In a letter to the church in Thessaloniki, Paul says, may God himself, the God who makes everything holy and whole, make you holy and whole, put you together spirit, soul, and body, and keep you fit for the coming of our master, Jesus Christ. The one who called you is completely dependable. If he said it, he will do it. The picture or the ideal of a you meeting a me and vice versa is that two whole and complete people come together in a union, not that two broken and incomplete people come together. It seems that if we read Genesis chapter 2 as there's going to be someone that makes me complete, well, that's never what the language suggests. Maybe another option that we get out of that text is this, is someone who never fails us. That someone who can come along and be perfect every time, be exactly what we need every time. And yet that narrative disappears really quickly as we press into the Genesis story. In Genesis chapter 3, right after the moment with the fruit, right after the fall, when God asks questions, we read, the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. It's the first blame shift in the history of humanity. It's this, it's not my fault, it's, it's her fault. It's the woman you gave me, that she failed me. The person you gave me that was supposed to never fail, they already failed and were only three chapters in. The writer Elizabeth Gilbert wrote Eat, Pray, Love. After a breakup in a relationship that left her traumatized, she went on a big exploration of the Far East and, and then wrote a second book called Committed, where she said, I came to peace with the idea of marriage. And this is what she said. People always fall in love with the most perfect aspects of another person's personality. Who wouldn't? Anybody can love the most wonderful parts of another person. But that's not the clever trick. The really clever trick is this. Can you accept the flaws? Can you look at your partner's faults and honestly say, I can work around that. I can make something out of it because the good stuff is always going to be there. And it's always going to be pretty and sparkly. But the crap underneath can ruin you. But the crap underneath can ruin you. It reflects on the fact that nobody is perfect. Nobody doesn't fail. Some of the time, and our expecta- if our expectation of finding this Genesis chapter 2 person is that someone will come along who will never fail. That doesn't seem to be the purpose of the text either. 
Final little nuance, final option. Somebody who interests us. Somebody who interests us, who keeps us engaged, who keeps us interested in the relationship. The New York Times writer John Turney wrote an article called Picky, Picky, Picky about the dating scene in New York uh, at the time he was writing. Uh, he records the first story that he encountered that started him thinking about this in an episode of something called Love Island. He, he said, well, it started out great. She opened the door and she looked fantastic. Beautiful face, great body, nice smile. Everything was going fine until she turned around. He paused ominously, shook his head. Chuck, he said sadly, she had dirty elbows. <laughs> and that was that. The guy went through the rest of the date, but he knew the relationship was doomed. He knew the relationship was doomed. We, as human beings, have this incredible ability to spot one fatal flaw in another human being that says, you no longer interest me, you no longer appeal to me. He gives a list of these potential options that he'd encountered. She mispronounced Goethe. How could I take him seriously after seeing the road less traveled on his bookshelf? Apparently that's a bad book, I don't know. Uh, if she would just lose seven pounds. Ooh, it's a little, a little groan there. Sure, he's a partner, but it's not in a big firm, and he wears those short black socks. There's like the fatal flaw in a person that says, no, you no longer interest me for whatever reason. He, he records that he recognized this in himself. During my years living alone, I always knew that my own requirements in a woman were perfectly reasonable. All I wanted was a nice novelist stroke astronaut with a background in fashion modeling. There's this picture that's somewhere outside, out, out there, there's someone who engages every aspect of our interest. And that, that's what marriage is supposed to be. Under all of those three different nuances, what I suggest is that the heartbeat of all of them is this. We are asking God to take the hard work out of our relationship. We're saying, God, if you can just provide someone who fits, that everything will be easy, we won't have to work as hard. And what I would say is this, I had this moment where I met my wife on this beautiful trip abroad. It was this spur of the moment romance that sprang up and we got married a year later and we've been married for 14 years and we've had to work at being in a relationship every single day of those 14 years. When a you collides with a me, it takes work and no amount of supposed perfection can take that away. Genesis chapter two isn't saying there's someone out there that means you don't have to work at a relationship, that's just not reality. The theologian Stanley Hauerau says this, destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment, necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there's someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. The moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage being the enormous thing it is means we are not the same person after we have entered it. One of the things I love to do when introducing Laura to people that she doesn't know or to speaking for a church for the first time is let people know she's been married to five different people. 
all of them happen to be me, but she has had to adapt to who I have become. The first person she met was just sweet and innocent and loved tea and worked on a golf course and never had any worries at all. And then that person transformed and became someone who still worked on the same golf course but earned almost no money and lived in the house with no possessions and stressed about what it was to provide for a new wife. Then she had to adapt to the next iteration of me, this person that became a father for the first time and, and knew for the first time the weight of loving somebody more than he loved himself. And then she had to deal with the next iteration, which was me as a youth pastor going on great adventures with kids and traveling a lot and, and, and being fairly carefree. And then the me that became a lead pastor and realized for the first time what real work was and that life was hard and that I was tired and she was tired and we would be for the next fair few years. She had to accept the fact that, like Emily Dickinson says, I was out with lanterns looking for myself. I probably didn't really know who I was and how could she if I didn't. There's this idea that we believe that God could make someone who's perfect for each one of us, and yet the question might be, which one of the one of you, which iteration of you is he or she perfect for? Because if you're like me, you know that you've changed. You've grown. Sometimes you've become worse in different aspects too. Just like me, there's this, this process, this growing that continues. Relationships are hard work. And so we have to work hard at our relationships and there's nothing that can, uh, can, can pull us away from that, nothing that can rescue us from that. If I were to give you my own translation of Genesis chapter two, it wouldn't be that there was someone out there that would give me everything I ever need. What it would be would be this. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make somebody to grow alongside him. I will make somebody to grow alongside him. There's an organicness to that, right? There's a companionship to that. In actual fact, I would say at the heartbeat of Genesis chapter two in our, and the heartbeat to our longing for this one that will come and join us in this journey of life is this idea of companionship. Central to the idea of Genesis, the Genesis story is this word, companionship. It's this possibility that two selfish human beings that really live you versus me. And I would suggest that's really at the heartbeat of all of us, this I concept, this I want what I want. I should get what I want to get. There's this idea that we might move from you versus me to you for me and me for you, this sacrificial idea. And even beyond that, that we might move to you and me together, this relationship that is really at its heart that companionship thing. I love it when I find authors that have a quote that I disagree with completely, and then I find another quote that I agree with a lot for whatever reason, and Friedrich Nietzsche has a load of stuff that I don't agree with, but I did agree with this. It's not a lack of love, but a lack of friendship that makes unhappy marriages. It's not a lack of love, but a lack of friendship. Stanley Hauerhaus finishes the quote I read earlier with this idea. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. To the stranger to whom you find yourself married. How do you do that? 
Well, maybe the same way that Jesus empowers us to love our neighbors, the people that happen to be close to us that we may not be related to and may not share anything in common with, maybe that same Jesus can empower us to love the people that we find ourselves in the same house as, the strangers that surprise us um, that we happen to be married to. Too. Maybe really what the heartbeat of Genesis chapter 2 is, is this. It's somebody to grow alongside in the same direction. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, there's this beautiful picture that the writer gives of, of the benefits of a relationship, of, of one becoming two. He says this, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And then just seems he changes and starts talking about three instead of two. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. This is read at almost every wedding. I read it at almost every wedding that I do. And it's this picture of bringing Jesus into a relationship with you. Perhaps I might adapt this and say that it's really you and me together with God. That is the heartbeat of the Genesis 2 relationship that we're given. There is no one, it seems. There's never this presentation that there's someone who can give you everything that you think that you need, however hard you pray and however much you dream. It seems actually the hard truth of scripture is this. The one is the one you choose to choose. And perhaps even something more. The one is the one you choose to choose who chooses you too. That's what it seems to suggest. In uh, the book, Captain Corelli's Mandolin, the father's advice to his daughter is this. Love is a temporary madness. It erupts like volcanoes and then subsides. And when it subsides, you have to make a decision. You have to work out whether the roots have so intertwined together that it's inconceivable that you should ever part. Because this is what love is. Love is not breathlessness. It's not excitement. It's not the promulgation of eternal passion. That's just being in love which any fool can do. Love itself is what is left over when being in love has burned away, and this is both an art and a, a fortunate accident. Those that truly love have roots that grow towards each other underground, and when all the pretty blossoms have fallen from their branches, they find that they are one tree and not two. They are one tree and not two. Isn't it beautiful that the Genesis idea that God presents is the two will become one. The idea of marriage is that that happens instantly. But I wonder if it's not instantly and over a long period of time. There's this ceremony when two people come together and they make promises to each other. And that's a good thing, a wonderful thing. But you might suggest this, that that is no better preparation for married life than a driving test is for life on the open road. We know from experience that there's passing a test and learning to drive, and I wonder if a wedding and marriage are not the same thing. Those that truly love have roots that grow towards each other underground, and when all the pretty blossoms have fallen from their branches, they find that they are one tree and not two. The beautiful invitation of Christian marriage is not the idea that you can find someone who will give you everything that you ever wanted. It's that you might find someone who's willing to grow with you, to change with you, and that two might become one. Let's pray. 
Jesus in this room, there are a whole bunch of people in different spaces. There are those of us longing for the right person to turn up. And sometimes a wonderful person, a wonderful option turns up on our doorstep and sometimes it feels like it takes a long time. And sometimes we marry that person. And sometimes for a while things seem easy. And yet, however wonderful that meet cute is, however wonderful that happily ever after moment is, each one of us will find that that relationship will become difficult at times. In this room, there are those of us that are in the midst of a difficult relationship. We're asking questions like, did I marry the right one? And yet at the heartbeat of scripture, what you say to us is this, the one you chose is the one you chose. And they chose you too. Your invitation to us is to not give up on that person, but to continue to grow together towards you. In this room, there are those that have found a person that's become a soulmate, whose roots intertwined to such a degree that there's been a loss and a death. And that itself has felt like death. There are those that feel discarded, hopeless, feel like no one desires them and no one wants them. There are those that feel shame over past broken relationships, guilt over things that they have done. And for every single one of us, what I believe you do, Jesus, is that as we sing, you walk in and amongst these aisles and chairs. You are with your children. And to each of us, you say to us, we are loved. We are desirable. We are wanted. Would you stand with me, friends? And feel free to just hold your hands in front of you. And we're going to come towards God just as me. There's no you in this moment, just me. Because I need this Jesus to make me complete. And then I need him to help me believe that he can restore all things, that he can walk with me in any situation, that he is present and that I am loved. And so Aaron and Chris are going to sing. And if you'd love someone to pray with you, I'll be down the front. A couple of other prayers will be down the front. If you are wrestling with shame, wrestling with hopelessness, wrestling with guilt, wrestling with a sense that you aren't loved, any of the things we've talked about, and you'd like someone to pray with you, that option is there. God, would you speak to your people? Remind us who we are. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give. And thanks for listening. We hope you have a great rest of your day.